We are in Psalm 34 tonight, uh, the Messiah's unbroken bones. Uh, Psalm 34 is another Psalm of David, uh, who wrote at least half of the Psalms. Uh, half of them are accounted uh, as for David in one way or another. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, Peter said that David was a prophet, and as a prophet, his number one prophetic topic was the Messiah. Well, dotted throughout his writings are what we might call prophetic messianic nuggets, and we have one of those here tonight in our study. And uh, the reason we know they are messianic uh, prophecies is because the New Testament plainly applies them uh, to the Messiah. And uh, we see Psalm 34 in that category. <clears throat> so note, uh, we want to have an outline. Whoops, sorry. Thanks for being ahead of me. That's good. You guys are good. Too good for me. Uh, Psalm 34, 1 through 10, celebration of God's providential care. 11 through 16, call to experience the goodness of God. And then uh, at the end of the chapter, God's providential care of the, of the righteous. Tremendous emphasis on providence uh, throughout uh, the psalm here, as we will note. Uh, David gave a title to this psalm, which says, A Psalm of David, when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. That's kind of an interesting heading to put over your psalm, isn't it? Uh, let's talk about this just a little bit. Uh, you know, this uh, accounts for the historical occasion uh, for this psalm. When God delivered David from the Philistine king of Gath is found in 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 15. And it was a time really of great weakness uh, in David, but a time when in spite of himself, God delivered him. And isn't that often the case? Uh, David, you see, was on the run from King Saul. And, uh, you know, it's like, David, what were you thinking? I mean, why would you go here? In running from Saul... He runs to take refuge with King Achish of Gath. He's a Philistine king. I mean, historically, the enemies of God's people. And uh, by the way, Abimelech here, his name is Achish, but Abimelech is thought to be a title, uh, kind of a, like a royal title of some kind, not a proper name. But while there, David overheard that they were telling King Achish about David's reputation for killing tens of thousands and immediately David was terrified. I mean, if somebody's telling the king, you know, Saul has killed his thousands and, and David is ten thousands, it's like, you know what, we might want to take this guy out. I mean, he is a historical enemy of our people, after all. Um, so I think David rightly was immediately terrified for his life. What have I done coming here? Well, fearing the Philistine king might kill him, he pretended to be insane by making marks on the doors of the gate and letting his saliva drool down over his beard. That's quite a strategy. <laughs> well, there's probably some historical reason for this. <clears throat> the commentators believe that the king, evidently in keeping with the thinking of the time, that an insane person around was a bad omen and therefore dismissed David, not wanting him around. Well, David then escaped to the cave of Adullam. Well, it's because of this historical occasion that David wrote Psalm 34. Now, when people use the word insane, it often has the connotation of something that causes wonder and amazement, right? They say something's just incredible off the chart. And we say, that's insane. 
right? Well, Psalm 34 has really an insane theme with that nuance in that David in terror disguised himself as a lunatic and in the process was amazed at God's providential intervention. This was not a miracle, uh, which is a supernatural intervention, a supernatural suspension, or the bypassing of the normal laws of nature. That's a miracle. But really, this was God's providential working, in which God works in, within the context of the normal laws of nature in perfect sync to bring about deliverance or to bring about his plan. Well, this was to the astonishment of David that led to this psalm of praise and thanksgiving. And in the process of writing this psalm, the Holy Spirit applied some of the words of David prophetically to the Lord Jesus Christ as further revealed in the New Testament scriptures. Well, let's work our way through the psalm, getting the background as it builds to the Messianic prophecy as couched in verses 19 and 20. So we'll touch on just a few uh, background highlights as we build to where we want to go with the Messianic prophecy here. Psalm 34, 1 and 2. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. David is giving all glory to God for his deliverance, as well he should. Clearly, he was so weak that all he could do was pretend to be crazy. Uh, that's really not a position of strength when you are playing the madman, when you're pretending to be crazy. And yet, you know what? God uses crazy things, right? Don't point. But God uses crazy things. And when we are crazy weak, as it were, uh, he proves himself insanely strong, right? In the sense of astonishment. In our great failures, in our great weakness, God ever remains strong. And we see that here with David. I mean, he was in such a weak position. All he could do was uh, feign insanity. And so he says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. God delivered him providentially, even using something as wild as pretending to be insane. Verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. It's really a standout verse as David invites all God's people to join in with him in magnifying and exalting the name of the Lord. Uh, haven't you ever used this verse when you have a case of celebration and uh, you say, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And then David specifically tells us <clears throat> why his heart was so filled with praise. Verse 4, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Remember the superscription here? Time of great fear to the point where he's thinking he's going to be killed. Verse 5, they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Well, in pretending insanity, David was at the same time in his heart seeking God for help and deliverance. You know, there are formal prayers, formal prayer meetings, and then there are desperate times in life when you're praying in your heart in the midst of all the craziness and desperation. That's what this was. This was David on this occasion. Verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. 
The angel of the Lord was a manifestation of Yahweh in the Old Testament scriptures prior to the incarnation of Christ. It's interesting, after the incarnation of Christ, we never again see the revealing of the angel of the Lord, but only the manifestation of an angel of the Lord. Well, this leads many of the commentators to believe that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was actually the pre-incarnate Christ, appearing in angel form. Well, David was very aware of God's surrounding presence on behalf of all those who fear, that is, reverence him, and the fact that he is the one responsible for the deliverance. Now, David could have said, wow, that was a close one back there. I really got lucky that time. Good thing I'm a great actor. It was my great acting ability that got me out of that one. But no, that's not the emphasis. He knew it was actually God's providence that brought about his deliverance. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So note these uh, interwoven terms here, uh, using a number of different things here. Uh, trust, verse 8, fear, verse 9, seek, verse 10. These concepts are really interrelated and speak of one who is properly looking to God for help and deliverance. To trust is to depend upon to fear is to reverence, and to seek is to look to God for help. And it is this combo that is really describing a God-honoring faith. And this was the heart disposition of David. And God responded by providentially delivering him. Now in verses 11 through 16, we have David challenging God's children to walk, therefore, in fear, in, in, uh, in a reverence for the Lord, for that is the way consistent with those that are truly the children of God. And it is consistent with the path of blessing. Verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Watch your mouth. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Now, Peter in the New Testament, uh, exhorting the saints to live in such a way that God can bless, quotes from this psalm. He quotes uh, Psalm 34, 12 through 15 as found in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. Uh, note what Peter says there. For he would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So clearly, Peter believed that the principles that David is laying out for a blessed life are applicable to New Testament Christians as well. And there's a strong connection here between how one lives and answered prayer. Note it carefully. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry 
focusing on the righteous. God honors the prayer of the righteous. As James 5.16 says, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Tremendous emphasis on the righteous in this whole surrounding context here. Verse 15, the righteous. Verse 17, the righteous. Verse 19, the righteous. Verse 21, the righteous. Well, as believers, we have no righteousness of our own. But when we believe on Christ, God imputes, that is, puts to our account, the righteousness of Christ. I'm so thankful I have imputed righteousness because I, I know I have none of my own. Uh, this imputed righteousness is positional righteousness, which is the position of every believer. Uh, note a couple of verses here. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took our sin on himself. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's in Christ that we have righteousness. <clears throat> and then uh, Philippians 3.9 and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness. I don't have my own. Which is from the law, trying to keep all the laws, all the rules. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. But I think David really has in view here practical righteousness. Those who are right in their walk with God as seen in verses 12 through 14. It is those that the Lord's eyes are upon and his ears are open to their cry. The effective fervent prayer of the righteous does avail much. Of course, those who have a positional righteousness will show that in, in some level of practical righteousness as the fruit of their position. Characteristic of true believers is that they are repenters as a way of life. You know, it's interesting, uh, I was listening to uh, a teacher, a Bible teacher, and he was saying that in Russia, uh, what they call believers is repenters. Repenters. A believer is a repenter. Uh, as an overall defining trait, this does define the people of God. We are repenters. Uh, this is the spirit in which David speaks, as seen in verses 15 and 16, where David contrasts the righteous who live accordingly with those who do evil and are cut off from the earth. Just a few quotes on, on this point. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I don't know if you can read it or not. Uh, Repentance is a characteristic of the whole life, not the action of a single moment. Uh, I think uh, he's on to something there, and he's not alone in saying this. Uh, Calvin said, repentance is not merely the start of the Christian life, it is the Christian life. And I like this, uh, I always think about this, you know, I say Martin Luther is quotable, I disagree with him on the issue of baptism for sure, but uh, he wrote the 95 Thesis and, and nailed it to the door. The first one was, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying, repent ye, etc., intended that the whole life of his believers on earth should be constant penance or the, or the idea of repentance. And then uh, Charles Spurgeon, sincere repentance is continual. Believers repent until their dying day. I think we are repenters. It does define us. Uh, you know, we're never really totally where we should be. But, you know, we have had a change of mind where we have put our faith in Christ, a change of mind with regards to our sin, with regards to our Savior. 
And, you know, that, that has affected our lives. It has changed our lives and is changing our lives. Verse 17 and 18, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Well, God works through the prayer of the righteous. God allows challenging times to come so that his people might cry out to him. And when they do, he hears and he delivers. God is constantly in the delivering business of his people in one form or another. Those of a broken and a contrite heart are those who are humbled before God. A contrite heart is uh, one who is humbled in repentance before God. And this is characteristic, as I say, of the, of the righteous who are God's people. Again, we are repenters. International Bible Encyclopedia says a contrite heart is one in which the natural pride and self-sufficiency have been completely humbled by the consciousness of guilt. Well, God honors those who are humbled before him, humbled in repentance and dependence upon him with an ongoing spirit of humility. David, in his repentance, said this, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And then in Isaiah 57, 15, thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's what we have here. And then he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Note what David says here. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Nowhere does David suggest that the life of faith and obedience will be exempt from all afflictions, trials, and trouble. In fact, here he says the exact opposite. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Yeah, we see, you know, it doesn't, if you're a godly man, it doesn't mean that you're a woman, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have troubles. Notice all the way through here. Delivered me out of all my fears. Verse 4, verse 6, saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 17, delivers them out of all their troubles. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's not like we don't have troubles and fears. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And certainly this was true of our Lord, right? I mean, the most righteous. Isaiah 53, 3 says of him, He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Now, if that was true of our Lord, why should we expect any different? We're not exempt from many afflictions, but also note the end of the verse. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, if we only take the short view, it might seem like this is not true. But if you take the long view, in the end, God does deliver the righteous out of all of his troubles. Now, sometimes he does it by way of death. You know, death is a, is a means of deliverance, ultimately. Now, he may do it in this life, and he may do it by means of death. In the case of our Lord, his life culminated in the ultimate trouble, if you will, the ultimate affliction, if you will, of the cross. But then he was delivered to glory. And so it is with us. We can expect many trials and afflictions. 
But in the end, our story is one of deliverance. This is how our story always ends as believers. It always ends in victory. Uh, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Yeah, it's not necessarily a cakewalk. You know, the uh, prosperity gospel, folks, we've really got this all wrong. Just just believe Jesus and everything's going to go swimmingly for you. You'll have the health, the wealth, and just send a little extra money in. You know, faith giving, just send me a little money, and then God will really pour it on you. All this craziness. You know, we read a different message in the Bible. Acts 14.22, Paul talks about strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom. We're on our way to the kingdom, but there's a lot of tribulations between here and the kingdom. William MacDonald says, but at least all our troubles are confined to this life. Yes! I think about that verse in uh, Proverbs, which talks about no grave trouble shall overtake them. Uh, And, of course, grave, I like to think of in terms of, you know, the grave. (laughs) You you die without Christ, you have real grave trouble. Double nuance on the word there. But uh, at least uh, all of our troubles are confined to this life. What is more, we do not have to bear them alone, for our eternal friend is by our side. No matter what we go through, even through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. We don't have to fear any evil. But do note the, the righteous cry and how God delivers them out of all their troubles. As seen in verse 17. And in that process, we have the promise of God being close to his people uh, who are repenters. As seen in verse 18. God is a God of deliverance. Uh, that is really emphasized in the New Testament. In one form or another, he delivers. He's always in the process of, of delivering. We go through this struggle, and he delivers. And, and, and Paul talked about this. Notice his testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a death, and who does deliver us, he has delivered us, who does deliver us, and in whom we trust that he will still deliver us in the future. It's a God of deliverance. It's not a, guy who's, uh, a God who says, you know, I'm going to just protect you from all the problems here. No, we face them. But he delivers us time after time after time. Look at the things he's brought you through. And we could all write a book on this. What God has brought us through as far as uh, afflictions and difficulties and struggles and, and sometimes really great things. What Paul describes as so great a death. David is speaking as one of the righteous who experienced God's deliverance. And in so doing, he really prophetically depicts the most righteous, the perfectly righteous one, as found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say, this is where we want to go tonight, verse 20. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Tucked in here, we have an amazing messianic prophecy. We know this Because the New Testament plainly tells us so in John chapter 19. It is truly amazing that Jesus did not suffer any broken bones in the process of being beaten and then crucified. The Roman governor Pilate had Jesus scourged. And scourging was so violent that many times people died as a direct result of it. Uh, Pastor Chip Thornton Probably no relation. But anyway, he writes, two Roman soldiers were stationed on either side of the victim. He's describing 
what, what a scourging, a Roman scourging was about. The victim's back muscles were stretched tight above his head. The soldiers took turns whipping the victim from the side. Now, you know, the Jews had a limit of 39, but the Romans didn't. <laughs> they beat you to a pulp, basically. The soldiers took turns whipping the victim from the side, striking the back, the waist area, the legs with force. The whipping instrument, called flagellum, uh, consisted of a handle from which extended several leather thongs. Small pieces of bones, iron balls, or sharp sh- uh, shards were affixed to the end of the leather thongs. The soldiers would strike, tear into the flesh, twist, and peel back the skin, expose a skeletal muscle. It was not uncommon to mistake, uh, misstrike the victim and have the leather thongs wrap around the face and the eye areas. We are not told how many stripes Jesus endured, but it sufficiently weakened him to the point that he could not carry his own cross. Scourging was so brutal that in the Roman Empire, citizens were exempt. Only foreigners and slaves could be scourged and undergo this type of abuse. Jesus was beaten so badly that Isaiah says you could hardly recognize him as a human being. Uh, In Isaiah, a couple of references here. But Isaiah 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And then in chapter 52, verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. MacArthur says, in other words, he was so disfigured from the sufferings inflicted on him that his face and body would not even appear to be human. I mean, this is unbelievable what Christ went through as far as even before he got to the cross. Incredibly, incredibly, Jesus suffered no broken bones in this brutal process. But it had to be this way. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover lamb typology. And this lamb, you see, was not to have any broken bones. As instructed by the Lord to Moses 1,500 years before the time of Christ. Note uh, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, In one house it shall be eaten, talking about the Passover lamb, You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Very specific. And we know that this is ultimately a type of of Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that uh, you may be a new lump, since truly you are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He fulfills the Passover typology. So we are not left to wonder if Psalm 34.20 is Messianic prophecy. Because John specifically tells us how the prophecy of no broken bones was fulfilled in the person of Christ. Note uh, what he says. John 19. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen this, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done so that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. 
And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. The precision fulfillment here is amazing. They broke the legs of the other two. But since Jesus was already dead, they did not bother to break his legs. And it had to be this way in order for prophecy to be fulfilled. Happened this way to fulfill the Messianic prophecy found right here in Psalm 34, 20. So note the prophetic flow. All the way through, it builds. Exodus 12, 46, 1,500 years before Christ. The Passover lamb, not a bone is to be broken. Psalm 34, 20, 1,000 years before Christ, uh, not a bone uh, is to be broken. And then John 19, fulfilled in the person of Christ. Furthermore, even though they didn't break any bones, they did pierce his side with a spear. And had to be some precision in jamming that spear up there lest you break a rib, Right? Yeah, a lot of precision. Uh, but uh, notice uh, Zechariah 12.10, uh, what it says there. And I will pour on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. How amazing. The Messiah would not have any broken bones. Predicted 1,500 years in advance in typology. 1,000 years in advance in Psalm 34. But he would be pierced as prophesied 500 years in advance. All these details were fulfilled with absolute accurate precision in perfect fulfillment of prophecy. Well, let me kind of have a footnote here. From time to time, uh, I've been asked, uh, well, since you say at communion that we are remembering the body of Christ that was broken, how does that square with Psalm 3420, which says not one of his bones is broken? That's a good question. This is the appropriate time to address that question, I guess. But I get asked that from time to time. And, uh, well, let's talk about it. To start with, uh, Christ, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he broke the bread. And then he said, take eat, this is my body. Uh, clearly, the broken bread here represents his body. That's the flow of the thought. Uh, he did not give it to them whole. Say, so each one of you take a loaf, unbroken, dig in. No. Uh, he did not give it to them whole or unbroken, but first broke it as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then, in that broken form, he said to eat this bread as representing his body. It was not Christ's body in unmarred form that was offered up for us, but it was severely abused, allowing his blood to be shed for our sins. Now, technically, it is true that the word broken is not found in the older manuscripts in 1 Corinthians 11.25, where the King James says, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. It is therefore argued uh, that really that to use this word broken here is not accurate. And I agree it could be confusing, which is why probably the question. And we must understand uh, what we are saying uh, with the right nuance for sure. We definitely want to get the sense right 
which is perhaps why the older manuscripts uh, do not have the word broken in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four. However, note that the Greek word translated as broken in the King James in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four is a form of the very same word translated as broke earlier in the verse. And is also used in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, where it says, quote, The bread which we break, emphasis on break there, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? As we're remembering what he did for us, we break the bread. In John 19, 36, by the way, when it quotes, Not one of his bones shall be broken, a different Greek word is used there for broken which is uh, there the idea of being completely or wholly broken. John Gill, the old Baptist pastor back in the 1700s, wrote, you know, and he wrote a lot of theology. But he wrote, uh, For though a bone of him was not broken, his skin and flesh were torn and broken by blows with rods and fists, by whippings and scourgings, by thorns and nails and spear. So it's important that we get the nuance right even though not a bone of Christ was broken, understood in the, with the right nuance, his body was broken for us as signified in the breaking of the bread that we partake of in communion. So note the nuance. Clearly Christ broke the bread symbolizing his body that was abused on the cross and then gave it to the disciples to eat. His body was most certainly broken in the sense of torn, pierced, and mutilated. But here's the key thing. While his body was broken, in the sense of torn and lacerated, yet his bones were not. Yes, understood with the proper nuance, I think we can say that his body was broken, but not his bones. So that's what I mean when I say this. Uh, Again, you know, others will say, hey, don't even use the language because it's really not technically a part of 1 Corinthians uh, 11. And I understand their concern there, but uh, I think uh, we make the point very clear. His bones were not broken, which is the the point here. And note it was because of God's sovereign providential care. He guards all his bones. And because of this, not one of them is broken. God was sovereignly superintending every detail of Christ's life and death. What an amazing story. What an amazing God behind the story. Truly, history is his story. David then ended the psalm in this way, verse 21, 22. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. David ends by stressing trust in the Lord. None of those who trust in him will be condemned. I love Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Psalm 34 is a wonderful psalm, emphasizing God's sovereign providential care of his own. And tucked in here is a messianic prophecy that God would providentially guard all the bones of the righteous Messiah so that not a single bone of his would be broken. Yes, he suffered terrible abuse. Couldn't even hardly recognize him as a human. And yet, no bones are broken. By way of application, we see that even in death, God protects the bodies of his saints. Nothing happens to us except that which is sovereignly permitted and ordained by God. Even the very details related to our death are ultimately orchestrated by the providential hand of God. 
Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Psalm 116, verse 15. We as the righteous, as God's people, we can trust and celebrate God's providential care over every aspect of our life and death. And therefore, let us say with David, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Let's have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.